and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And because He did, we are here. What shall He teach us today from His Word? Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish Christian philosopher, once wrote, Whereas Christ turned the water into wine, the church has succeeded in doing something more difficult. It has turned wine into water. Has the church done that today? Is that what's up with the church? I'm talking about our church. I'm talking about the Seventh-day Adventist church. Have we turned the wine back into water? And if we have, what's the hope for this generation? Let's pray. Oh, God. On this homecoming Sabbath, we wonder, have we turned the wine back into water? Dear Father, please reverse our reversal and save us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I had the joy this last weekend of being in Paris with European young Seventh-day Adventists from all over the continent. They're part of an organization called Amicus, Adventist Ministry to college and university students. A turned on bunch of young disciples of Christ. Had a wonderful weekend. But on Sunday, some of us decided to visit what I learned subsequently is the most visited museum in all the world. I'm talking about the, the, the famed French museum, the Louvre. Got Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Got to see Mona Lisa. You've got Hammurabi's code, chiseled cuneiform in that black rock. You've got thousands of art and artifacts collections. Wow, it's a huge museum, one of the largest. Anyway, so we're, we're walking into this massive, long exhibit hall. And I turn around and discover a painting so big. In fact, it's the largest, next to the largest painting in the museum. Towering up to the ceiling, and as soon as I recognize what the painting is, I said, i got to pull my camera out, because this is our teaching for next Sabbath, Alumni Sabbath, this will be it. So let me share with you some snaps of that painting. Put it on the screen. I'm standing back a ways, a ways, a ways. Everybody's in front, and they're holding their cameras up. They're taking the pictures of that painting. Let me just tell you, before I tell you what the painting is, that painting is so huge. In non-metric terms, it's 21 and two-thirds feet tall and 32 and a half feet long. So let me get a, another shot. I got up close so you could just see how, how let's go to the next picture, please, how, how tall that stretches up in that uh, exhibit hall. What is that painting? That's the, ninth, that's the 1563 work of Italian painter... Paolo Veronese, and it's the wedding at Cana. Beautiful, beautiful painting. Now, look, you can't get it. Let me show you one more. I snapped this picture, but you know the lighting. You keep trying. Oh, I've got to move where the light 
You can't do it. So we went online. Here is, a, here is the digital picture of that painting. You get the full effect of it. Let me tell you about that painting. Take a, take a careful look at it. Do you know how many human figures are in that painting? Over 130. Uh, Paolo was not content unless he had multiple, multiple people in any painting he did. Now, there's only one person looking straight at the artist. That's our Lord Jesus. So let's, let's zoom in on the Lord Jesus. There he is. Mother Mary is sitting beside him. Let's take another shot now over to the bride and the groom. There they are, right at the edge of the painting. You can tell which one's the bride and which one's the groom. And there's something very interesting about this painting, and I have to tell you, over 130 people, and not a single one of them is talking, because the painting was commissioned by a Benedictine monastery where silence is the rule. So when he painted it, all 130, no talking. That painting hung. For 235 years in that monastery until Napoleon plundered it in 1797, cut it in half, shipped it to France where they stitched it back and where it still hangs today. Wow. Let's take the original down. Let's go to the original story. Everybody knows and loves the story of the wedding at Cana. Why? Because everybody loves a wedding, of course. Except perhaps the father of the bride who's not only losing his little girl, but is having to pay to lose her. What is up with that? Been, through, been there and done that. How many times have we stood in the shadows of that little Cana kitchen? We're there. Shh. We're not going to interrupt the, the banquet servants scurrying in and out. Their sandals slapping up dust into the air. Dust that's captured by that shaft of sunlight streaking through that lone kitchen portal, turning that shaft into gold because of the dust fragments. We stand there and the plot always thickens, doesn't it? When that desperate servant comes flying into the kitchen in a panicking dither. We're out of wine. We ran out of wine too soon. The party's over. This has been ruined. What are we going to do? And everybody is, is wringing hands. And then we always remind ourselves when, when that uh, servant comes in, we remind ourselves, oh, that's right. The weddings were longer back then, seven days and beyond. And it would be a terrible affront to the guests that you've invited if you run out of food and wine. They are in trouble. And then somebody calls, yo, call the coordinator. And a few moments later, there she is, Mother Mary. Now, Desire Mages tells us that Mary was related to both parties in that, uh, in that wedding. This is bad news. I mean, for the sake of the young couple and the family, please. Mary ponders what her options are, and then her face, we're standing in the kitchen in the corner, we see it, her face just beams, ah, her boy. You see, her boy's been gone for two months, came back, emaciated and thin, hollow cheeks, like only a mother would notice. You haven't been eating. But he came back with a band of young men who, with reverential admiration, hang on nearly every word he speaks. Mary believes the prophecies. She believes her baby is the Messiah promised from God. So this is just perfect. This is his moment. And John minces no words in his narrative. I want you to see this, please. The Gospel of John. Open your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. You didn't bring a Bible, pull the pew Bible out in front of you, page 714 in that pew Bible. Take a look at this. John, chapter 2. Now, alumni, I need to tell you, 
Now, this is the first time in history, all the way back to Battle Creek. I don't know if we have any from the classes in Battle Creek who are here. But this is the first time in history, Battle Creek, Emmanuel Missionary College, Andrews University. I'll just bet you it's the first time that this institution, with its grand, lengthy heritage, is setting aside an entire year. Listen to this carefully. Every public venue for worship, dorm worships, co-ed worships, co-curricular worships, chapels, House of Prayer, prayer meetings, Sabbath morning at Pioneer, every public venue is examining one of the four Gospels or the book of Acts. An entire year devoted. In fact, today, we begin one chapter of Sabbath. We spent four in the previous chapter, but now we begin one chapter of Sabbath. And when we get to the last chapter, it'll be the last, the last Sabbath of the school year. So we're glad you're here, alumni. Open up to John chapter 2. The title of this series is The Last Word, the Fourth Gospel for a Final Generation. John chapter 2, take a look at this. Everybody knows this story, verse 1. But we want to find out how Mother Mary deals with it. Watch this. Verse 1, John chapter 2. And on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. John will never call her Mary in the entire book. She's always only the mother of Jesus. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now, verse 2, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And verse 3, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, look, ladies and gentlemen, when mothers make declaratory statements, are they simply statements of fact? Huh? Your room is a mess. Well, mother, very observant you are. Bless you. Is she making a statement of fact? No. We learned very early in life, did we not, that a maternal observation was usually a maternal command. Do something about it now. Right? They have no more wine. Is that a maternal observation? Or is it an implicit maternal command? Please, son, do something about it right now. That Jesus heard it that way, because he's a boy who grew up with that woman, is proof in his response. Take a look at his response. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Code phrase woven now all the way through the fourth gospel. My hour, the hour, my hour, the hour. Code for Calvary. Code for atoning sacrifice. This is not my time. Woman. But it is clear that mother's eyes win over son's protest. Remember how your mother looked at you? She didn't have to say a word. She just looked at you. Apparently, Mary does that. Because she says, it's not my time. But she turns around. She turns around to the servants. And she says, verse 5, His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Look, this may not be his hour, but I am still his mother. <laughs> do it. Whatever he says. Craig Keener calls it her holy chutzpah. Her chutzpah of faith. I like that. So everybody in the kitchen just stared. All right. Whatever he says, she said, we do. What do you say? <laughs> Jesus is standing there. 
a loving son, obedient to his mother. He's just let her know he's no longer her boy. Just the boy. But obedient to his mother and obedient to his heavenly father. He makes a decision. One command. Here he goes. Verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews. So the ritual watching before you eat. Okay, there they all are. Now, those, stones, those, those pots contain 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, here comes verse 7. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Verse 8, and he said to them, now, draw some out. Take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Verse 9, and when the master of the feast... When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Yo, he said, come over here. Verse 10, he said to him, look, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. No, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Question is, do we? Do we believe in him? Now remember, remember, we are not going to this story to review the turning of water into the wine. We are going to this story to discover the turning of wine back into water. Now, some of you, when you came in today and you got the worship bulletin, said, oh, why, this is Alumni Sabbath? Great. Oh, whoa, look at that. Look at the sermon. What an original title, Turning Water into Wine. And you looked at the picture. I'll put, in fact, we'll put it on the screen for you. This is the graphic on your bulletin cover. This is our, our, our uh, title for today's teaching. But notice, it's not turning water into wine. It's turning wine into water. And I want you to note what our young adult graphics designer, Rochelle Thompson, who gets married a week from tomorrow, that's why she did so well on this. Take a look at that. She's marrying Brenton Offenbach, who grew up right here in our community. Anyway, look what... You thought that was water turning into a cup, and then it becomes wine. No, no, look carefully. What is it? It's wine going into a cup that suddenly, as it hits the bottom of the cup, becomes water. See that? That's our point today. I mean, how did, how did Soren Kierkegaard put it? Let's put it back up on the screen, please. Whereas Christ turned the water into wine, the church has succeeded in doing something more difficult. It has turned wine into water. So, here's the question. How does the church do that? How is the church that you belong to and that I belong to, how have we been doing that? How have we been turning the wine back into water? You know, you have some ideas right now that are popping into your head. How is it that we turn wine back into water? Here's the deal. I want to hear from you. Pull out your cell phone. Let's go. Pull out your cell phone. We'll do this. You got your cell phone here? Don't, don't fake like you, you don't have it here. You have it. Just pull your cell phone out. I'm going to put a, in, in just a moment, I'm going to put the question up on the screen. And then the text number will be there. And would you text that number with your response? Now, this is not going to be just some little quickie. Oh, well, no, I want you to think. We're going to take a little time. It's embedded right into the sermon time that you ponder for a moment. Let's put the question up now. There it is. In what way has the church? What are some of the ways? There's not just one. What are some of the ways that the church has turned the wine back into water? Let's find out. You see that text number there? You punch in that text number. And then with your overactive on steroids thumbs, you just punch that sentence out. You don't need two or three sentences. You just, just put it down. I'll quit talking for a moment. 
so that you can do that. What are some of the ways? And then I want to, I'm going to read them. I have, my, I have my wife's iPad in the pulpit with me. So, get this on. There we go. Okay. So, you're going to be texting to me and I'm going to get them right here. All right. Please. You're thinking. Good. You're in the choir and you have a cell phone. Try it. Those of you, by the way, watching live streaming, almost forgot about you. We're glad to have you on this uh, homecoming Sabbath. You're watching live streaming right now. You can do it. Where anywhere in the United States, in the anywhere in the world, you want to pay the toll, you can punch that number in and you can send a message, and we'll get it right here. Oh boy, here! Oh mercy, here they come. <laughs> All right, boy, we are climbing fast. You only had 520 last time you and I did this. How many cell phones are coming to church? But I'm glad you're bringing them. Bring them all this fall, will you? Bring them all this school year. Glad you have them. And alumni, by the way, you can join us live streaming anytime you want. 11.30 Eastern Time. 11.30 Eastern Time on our website, www.pmchurch.tv. You can join us. You're, you're sick at home, can't go to church. You can worship right here in your old home church. Be live. No matter who's preaching, it'll be live every Sabbath to the world. All right. Okay. What are some of the ways? Whoa, here are two that appeared. What are some of the ways? Good, good. Right up to 256. Quit talking to me. All right, there we go. Cancel. Cancel. I tell you, whoever invented this stuff. Oh, brother. Oh, okay, okay. Listen to this. Lack of Bible study. Okay, what are some of the ways the church is turning the wine, wine into water? Lack of Bible study. TV and Internet takes too much of our time. Oh, we're using the Internet. We shouldn't probably, but we are. TV and Internet takes too much of our time. Come on, we're a techno society, but the person's obviously making a point. All right. How, what, what are some of the ways the church has turned the wine back into water? Bureaucracy. Whoa. Have we become so top-heavy now that everything is institutionalized? The wine is gone. The succulent taste of the living Christ has been overcome by bureaucratic operation. Whoa. Not Not all say that they are Christians. No, not all Adventists say that they're Adventists and they act or act like Adventists. Hypocrites. Ouch. All right. We made what is sacred common. Whew. Loss of a sense of the holy. We focus more on rules than Jesus' love. That happened to us. How do you turn the wine? How can you turn the wine back into back into water? By substituting Christ's doctrine for man's tradition, wine is turned to water. It means by substituting man's tradition for Christ's doctrine, it's turned into water. Fail to trust and follow Christ. Fail to wait on Him. 
The lack of reverence. Hmm. What is it we do that turns the wine back into water? We go through all 398 responses right here. These keep coming. I'm going to take that off the screen now. What is it we do that turns the wine back into water? Kierkegaard's right. We've done something more difficult. We've turned the wine back into water. You say, ah, oh, come on, Dwight. You can't do that. You just, you, just, you just can't take a lovely little story like this and turn it, turn it into a little parable about the church. Oh, yeah? I just found out this week. Listen to this. Fascinating. I just discovered this week that there's something embedded in this story that allows us to do just that. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, just John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan. Now, I want you to hold on to that third day. Craig Keener, in his magisterial two-volume commentary of John, which I bought for this series, powerful, he points out that what we have here is actually a literary device called, listen to this, it's called an inclusio. Latin word. What's an inclusio? When an author inserts an inclusio, it's like he essentially places two matching bookends on either side of a passage that he wants to treat as a whole. It can be a few verses. It can be a, a, a series of chapters. But when he inserts an inclusio, the author is saying, hey, yo, 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 these are not, these are not separate, unrelated components. They all are to make a single point. And guess what? We find an inclusio right here in John chapter 2. Let's put, it, let's put it on the screen here. Inclusio number one, on the third day. Now, if you would drop down to verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And the Jews repeat him. On the third day and in three days, the inclusio. John is saying there's a driving point, guys. There's a driving point for these stories being locked together by those two bookends. What's the driving point? We better find out about that other story. We can talk about the church, maybe. Let's read the second inclusio story. Second inclusio story begins in verse 13. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, hit the pause button right there. Isn't it amazing that John inserts the Passover of the Jews? If he were writing to only a Jewish Christian audience, he would have said, now the Passover came, and Jesus goes to Jerusalem. But no, he inserts the Passover of the Jews. John obviously intends Gentile readers like you and me to be reading this so that we understand this is a high day. In the life of the Jewish community. And by the way, when you say Passover to a Jewish Christian, even in first century, and, by, and this is 70 years after the story. When you say Passover to a Jewish Christian, you say Passover to a Gentile Christian. In that immediate hearing or reading, there is this boom flashback. And the listener, the reader, suddenly sees a midnight doorpost glistening with un coagulated lamb's blood shining in the dark. The Passover means the death angel passed over the homes of the Hebrew slaves that believed in the Redeemer and splashed with hyssop branches blood, lamb's blood, on the doorposts of their little slave huts. The grand supernatural deliverance of God's people. That's what's happening when you say Passover. By the way, John is the only one of the four Gospels that notes every Passover. We know from John, Jesus had four Passovers, which means his ministry was three and a half years long. He will die on the fourth Passover. 
That's what the clue is. Calvary is coming. Calvary is coming. All right, verse 13. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, oh boy, the plot really thickens now. Here we go, verse 14. And he, Jesus, found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. I want you to picture the scene. Here comes this young rabbi. Entourage of at least five that we know of. He comes striding for the first time as an adult that we know of into the mighty, the, the, the magisterial architectural feet of Herod the Great. Jerusalem's temple. Burnished gold overlaid. White ivory inlaid. They say that when the afternoon sun shined on Herod's temple, it was set ablaze like a fire. One of the great wonders of the world. He comes walking in. And what is the scene that greets his young eyes as he steps into that courtyard and drinks it all in? Remember, this is the edifice of which God once said, Let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. This is the building where God, Shekinah glory behind that inner veil, but nonetheless divine glory. God is in this building. And what greets the dark and fiery eyes of this stranger, this young rabbi, as he walks in? Lowing of cattle. Bleating of sheep, the cooing of doves, the clink of money changers. Something has gone desperately wrong with the church. It wasn't a pretty scene. You see, God told Moses in Exodus 30, When you come to my temple, bring an offering. A half shekel was required a year. But now, this is the perfect opportunity if you want to get a little scam going. They had a, they had a temp, temple shekel. You couldn't bring your foreign homeland currency. You had to exchange your currency to get that shekel. And therein lay the angry bartering. Come on, you can't tell me a shekel is worth that. Therein lay... The under the table. Bakshish. Jesus steps in. And by the way, in that raucous cacophony of bedlam, there are actually worshipers from all over the world who've spent, who knows, a life saving to stand in Jerusalem's temple today and worship. They're trying to talk to the Most High God in prayer and this horrendous noise. I mean, it's like a used, it's like a used car lot. The, the animals are parked like cars on a used car lot. It's just mayhem. And they're trying to worship. And the young Messiah steps in and with those eyes takes it all in. Wow. Verse 14, And he found in the temple... Those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. I want you to read on verse 15. He makes up his mind quickly. 
And when he had made, verse 15, when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the changers' money and he overtook those tables just with one hand. He's a carpenter, remember? Poof! Tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. Money everywhere. It was not a pretty scene. I remind you that animals, when they are startled, have a physiological reaction with either their bladder or their bowels. I remind you that money changers, when their money is taken from them, have a physical reaction. And so you have animals. You have this young man with a scourge in his hand. Never used it. You have animals and money changers slipping and sliding on what has been now deposited on that marble floor trying to get away from him. It was not a pretty scene. Verse 16, he said to those who sold the doves, take these things away. I like it in the NIV. Get this out of here. Voice heard to the farthest edges the courtyards, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Three and a half, three years later, he will cleanse the temple one more time. Then it will not be his father's house. Do you know what he'll say? My house. And when he walks out of it, it will be your house. It's not ours anymore. You may have it. You have made my father's house. Place of merchandising. Wow. Verse 18. No, verse 17. The disciples remembered. Psalm 69, verse 9. The disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Consumed. Fiery. Passion. Wow. And so, verse 18. The Jews. I want to hit the pause button right there. Because you need to know, this is not the Jewish people. When John uses that code, the Jews, he always refers to the religious hierarchy, the, spiritual, the intended spiritual leaders of the community of faith. The Jews are not the people. They're the prelates. They're not the people. They're the priests. And therein will lie the conflict all through the Passovers. That they knew what this young stranger was doing is clear. They heard him loud and clear. He is assuming the right to administer the affairs of the temple. They they got it. He is announcing his mission as Messiah. They got it. That they got it is shown by their response. They could have just laughed and said, who is this guy? No, they shoot back at him, verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, the leaders, destroy this temple, and in three days, there's that inclusio, and in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, verse 20, it's taken 46 years for Herod to build this temple, and will you raise it in three days? But, verse 21, Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, verse 22, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the church and the word which Jesus had said. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no question John intends for the story of the church and the story of the wine and the water to be bound together in a single driving point. What's the driving point? 
Soren Kierkegaard put his words up again. The Danish philosopher, whereas Christ turned the water into wine, it is about the church. The two stories make sure we know it's about the church. Whereas Christ turned the water into wine, the church has succeeded in doing something more difficult. It has turned the wine into water. Question, have we become like the leaders of Jerusalem's temple? Have we over the years, since you graduated even perhaps, have we been accumulating our own unique, our own pet traditions and the traditions mounting and mounting, cluttering our courtyards until we are chuck-a-block with this collection? All the while, the one who is the raison d'etre of the temple, or in our case, the truth, because we're not big on the temple, we're big on truth. If we have the truth, that's all we need. We'll make it. Just like them. If we have the temple, that's all we need. We'll make it. Could it be that the reason for the truth is what's gotten short, shifted, shifted in the church today? And we have taken the wine and we have turned it back into water. Wow. How do we do it? You just acknowledged hundreds of ways that we do it. Let me ask you something. Where's the wine today? Where is the passion of Adventism today? Where's the fire? When's the last time you were really excited about being a Seventh-day Adventist Christian? When's the last time your congregation in worship acted like it was excited being a Seventh-day Adventist Christian? Where's the fire today? Where is the passion today? The wine is gone. The succulent wine is gone. And we are left with tepid water instead. Wow. Oh, I know. I know. That our church administration has been crisscrossing the globe, reminding us all that it is time for revival and reformation. And I'll be the first to jump up and second that motion. But I've got to tell you, serving this campus to a generation of young third millennials as well as a generation of jaded baby boomers, the code phrase revival and reformation can come across as hackneyed and far too programmatic and hierarchically oriented and legislated. We've heard it all our lives. So what does it mean? Who knows what it means anymore? Simply preaching about it and talking about it and voting about it. And I've added my share of sermons to the collection. Simply writing about it hasn't brought it, has it? Could it be that the church has turned the wine back into water and that what the church needs today is not the miracle of revival and reformation? We need the miracle worker of revival and reformation. That's what we need. We need the person of Christ, not the program of Christ. We've majored in the program. We need the person. We need the wine again. Inclusio story number two. The church desperately needs a miracle. Inclusio story number one. Jesus is the miracle. Jesus is all the miracle. 
or a church that has managed to turn the wine back into water, Jesus is the only miracle left. Our truth will not save us any more than the temple can save us. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. I've heard a joyful sound somewhere. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. The Calvary is embedded in this miracle that we desperately need is clear from this inclusio. You think about it. Boy, they're, they're just huge teletyping hints that this is about Calvary. For example, Jesus' address of his mother with this strange vocative of woman heard in Cana will be heard only one other time on the cross. Woman, behold your son. The water and wine that flowed in the village of Cana foreshadow the water and blood that flow from the cross of Calvary. Connect. The Passover Lamb of God who cries out, Take these things away! will be the Passover Lamb of God who died to take away the sin of the world. Calvary is embedded in this inclusio. That means if we want the miracle, we must have the miracle worker of Calvary. For the church that has managed to turn the wine back into water, Jesus is the only miracle left. There's nothing else. We can wait until alumni classes come and go by the centuries. There's nothing else. If we seek to find it somewhere else, we'll be having these reunions for a long, long time. So, will you let Jesus, will you let Jesus turn your water back into wine? Forget about the church. We don't need to think of the church anymore. You and me, we're the church anyway. So how is it with you? What was your class again 20 years ago? How is it with you? When the wine was rich and young, and you and Jesus were, and today, still wine? Still wine in your life? What's happening? Have we just settled down for a long winter's night on this planet and one day I'll die and then the blessed hope? Please, won't there come a generation that says, we've waited long enough. Let's go home. Let's have a homecoming again. I happen to believe that Jesus is returning soon to this planet. I join with Jeff in that conviction. Lawyer believes it. Preacher believes it. It's two of us. I tell you what. The president said this in his opening convocation this year. It's not rocket science anymore to know that the world is on the edge of eternity. I mean, you got people who don't believe in anything who are saying we're on the edge. I was over in Europe a few days ago. Keep your eye on Europe. If Europe goes, we all go. It's the largest economy in the world. We're number two. The European Union is number one. 
The brightest minds on this planet have not been able to calculate an adequate response. What's up? We're out of time. That's what's up. We're out of time. I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to let you just do business as usual. So here's the question. Okay, forget everything. Here's the question. If Jesus came tonight, would you be ready? If Jesus came tonight, would you be ready? Would you? He comes tonight. Will you be ready? Tonight, would you be ready? That's the defining question. Forget all of the rest. Don't worry about Europe or the U.S. If He were to come tonight, would you be ready? Would I be ready tonight to meet my Lord and go home with Him? The homecoming we've been living for. Would you be ready if Jesus came tonight? Only you know the answer to that. So let me ask another question because that's a, that's a downer. Would you like to be ready if Jesus came tonight? Would you want to be ready? Of course you would. Of course I would. And ladies and gentlemen, it's time to pray for the miracle worker. The miracle that we need is the miracle worker himself. You say, Dwight, I don't know how to pray for that. Piece of cake. Here it is. Jesus, look at my life. I'm water. I'm water. Spiritually, I am water. Do you understand? I need wine. I don't know how to get that wine. You are the only one who can turn water back into wine. I'm asking you, take the water of my life and turn me back into wine. I beg of you, just ask Him. Ask Him to turn me back into wine. I'm going to put the number on the screen up one more time. If you will text us your email address... I will send you seven steps to turning the water back into wine. If you will text us at that number, live streaming, you're watching, text us at that number. I'll send you seven steps to turning the, wine, the water back into wine. If you have never accepted Jesus before in your life, but you dropped in on this weekend and you're here at this moment, and you would, like, you would like somebody to help you accept Jesus, would you write on this, not just your email address, but write the words, first time. Nobody knows what you're sending. First time. Over the next couple days, I'll get it to you. Seven simple steps to turn the water, to let Jesus turn the water back into wine. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, we're at the edge. Come on. Let's go. I like what Jeff said. You know, you come under this conviction and you've got to tell somebody. You can't just sit on it. You don't have to be a graduate of the seminary to tell somebody. You can be a janitor. You can be a dentist. You can be a lawyer. You can be an engineer. You can be anybody. A housewife. You can be God's instrument. It's time for the passion and the wine to come back. I want that wine in my life. Oh, I was praying last night. Praying this morning. God, I want that wine. I want that more than anything. I want the wine of Christ. Please, please, as never before.